Now, you and I are going to die because, you see, the Bible teaches that you and I have a body. But you, the real you, your intelligence, your memory, your personality is going to live forever and ever. You will never die. And you're going to spend a million years, a billion years, in one of two places. Good morning, church family. For those of you who are watching online, if you don't know who I am, I'm Pastor Steve, one of the pastors on staff. It's my privilege to bring the word this morning. And I want to talk about good works this morning. I want to tell about works, but we got, we got to start out by getting a couple of things out, out, of what, out of the way. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you're probably coming from a background that says, Good works are those things that are going to get me to heaven. So if I do enough good works and they outweigh my, my bad works, then when it comes to the final judgment, God's going to say, come on in because your works are so great. Well, I hate to burst your bubble this morning, but I'm going to burst it. Because the scripture is clear that your salvation, your eternal destiny, has nothing to do with your works. Paul says it very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that... By grace you've been saved through your faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest no man should boast. On the other hand, I also want to say this, because I'm going to go right into verse, verse 10 in a second, but I want you to just stop and think for a minute about who you are. And this is what I'll say. I believe that you are the crown of God's creation. You're it. You're the best that God put together. And he put you together uniquely, every single one of us, differently and uniquely. And he, he designed us uniquely and differently in order that we might use that uniqueness to ultimately serve him and glorify him. And that's why Paul says in verse 10 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, for we are his workmanship. The word is poema, from which we get our English word poem. It really means masterpiece. We are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should, in Christ, that we should walk into them. So we were created by God uniquely for the purpose of doing good works. And, and I need to say this right off the front, in case you miss it, good works don't determine your faith. They demonstrate your faith. Good works don't determine your salvation. They demonstrate that, that you're saved. And today we'll see that Scripture tells us that everyday good works have eternal consequences. Consequences in the kingdom of come, the kingdom to come. Nothing that you do is irrelevant. Nothing that you will ever do is irrelevant. What we do, how we do it, why we do it, is all going to be considered by Jesus on a day when you and I, as Christians, will stand before him. The New Testament is clear that a day is coming when we will all appear before Christ. Let me read it. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is talking about the fact that whether we're here or whether we're in, in heaven, 
that uh, we, should be, we should be walking to please God, and that if we're, if we're not here, we have a, a heavenly home. And he says in verses 9 and 10, he says, so whether we are at home or away, meaning out of the body, we make it our aim to please him, Jesus. Verse 10, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The judgment seat of Christ. Now, we get a little squeamish when we talk about judgment. Nobody likes to talk about judgment or likes to be judged. And we immediately, our minds immediately run to that day when we're going to be standing before God at the great white throne, and he's going to say, okay, Johnson, you're in, and Joe, you're out, and, or, or, or whatever. That's not going to be happening for Christians. That is not what's being discussed here when we talk about the judgment seat of Christ. Because if you're a Christian, as we saw in Ephesians, your eternity is already set. Jesus says it very clearly in John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in me, who has sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but is passed from death to life. So there won't be that instant for you and for me. Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse one, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter one, verse seven, in the midst of the longest sentence in the New Testament, Paul says, he makes it clear, in him that is in Jesus, we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. I like the picture that Isaiah gives in chapter 38 about what God's done with our sins. It says he's put them behind his back, literally between the shoulder blades. When was the last time without a mirror you were able to see what was going on between your shoulder blades? Doesn't happen. All of our sins have been forgiven in Jesus Christ for those who have placed faith. Whatever this judgment seat of Christ is, it has nothing to do with your eternal destiny, whether you get into heaven or not. Well, Steve, when's this gonna happen? Well, there are two major views here. One view is that this is gonna take place at the final judgment, and seeing your destiny's already set, What's going to happen at the the great white throne at the end of time is he's going to separate believers from unbelievers, but as he's separating, he's going to be rewarding those of us who have done good works here on earth as he ushers us into his presence into heaven forever. I personally believe that Jesus is going to come, he's going to call the church out of the world just before the seven-year period of the tribulation that we've talked about a little bit over the last few weeks. And uh, during that time, uh, we're going to appear before this judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to change the name in a few minutes. And the reason why I believe that, because in Revelation chapter 19, verse 8, as Jesus is returning to earth, we find that the saints are dressed in white, their linen, And that linen is a picture for the righteous deeds. So they've already been apparently awarded for their righteous deeds when Jesus comes back. So while I can't be dead set on when it is, I honestly believe it's going to take place sometime between the rapture and the return of Jesus. 
But that's really not the most important part. The most important part is what happens there. What is this really all about? What is the, the judgment seat of Christ, and what does it mean? Well, the word judgment seat in this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is really one word in Greek, and it simply means bima. You've heard it, not beamer, bima. Okay? And the bima is simply a raised platform. It, it was a platform that was used, a raised platform that was used um, by judges in local tribunals, and especially by athletic judges who would judge to see whether or not people would compete according to the, the rules, and then they would award their, the, the, the winners of the, the athletic contests. And the Corinthians clearly understood um, what, what Paul is talking about here. Here's a picture of the ruins of the Bema in the Roman Forum in Corinth. And whether or not the athletes got to this one or one in the stadium, I don't know. But as you can see on the right, you see some steps going up, and then you turn left, and you go up to the top. And so you can imagine in the, in the Greek games um, that uh, there would be a place like this that's called the Bema. Now, the Bema is a place. It's not an activity. It's not a judgment. It's a place. The Bema is a place. And to say the Bema seat is to, is to double up because the Bema is a seat. It's a, it's a seat on, on, top, on top of a place. So outside of Corinth, there was an Olympic-sized stadium. And once every two years in Corinth, they would have what was called the Isthmian Games. And, and athletes would come from all over Greece, and they would compete in the normal stuff you think they would compete in an Olympic-type game. Running, jumping, javelin throwing, discus throwing, uh, long jump, chariot racing, uh, boxing, wrestling, believe it or not, poetry reading, and singing. Singing, indeed, was an Olympic event in the first century. I think I would never get a medal. And what would happen is, when the winners won, they would be led to the stairs of the beamer, bima, not beamer, the bima, and they would walk up the steps. In this case, they'd walk up, they'd turn left, they'd walk up to the top, and then they would either lean down or kneel down in front of the judge, and the judge would take a garland that was cut from a fir tree in a sacred grove nearby the stadium, and he would place it on his head, and he would be crowned the, the winner. The point was the, the, the garland, the wreath, was a symbol of his triumph. It was a symbol of honor. It was a sim symbol of prominence. And so when we talk about the bema of Christ, we're talking about a place and we're talking about the person who's sitting at the bema, Jesus Christ. Okay? So we're talking about the preeminence of the one who sits on the platform and somehow another honor that comes our way as a result of something that's been done in life. Again, the issue is not our eternal destiny. That's been settled by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So what happens at the Bema? Well, Paul talks a little bit about it in Romans chapter 14 in the midst of trying to keep the Christians in, in Rome from judging one another. Um, he says in chapter, uh, chapter 14, verse 10, 
Why do you pass judgment on your brothers? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the bema of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And here's verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The first thing we see that happens at the bema is that each one of us who are believers will give an account to God. An account of what? An account of our life. Now, lest you are starting to picture millions and millions of of Christians gathered around a massive screen and this bema like being at a Taylor Swift contest, a concert where everybody's going to hear everything that's ever happened in your life uh, as you interact with Jesus. I think the emphasis on the word each here talks about this being an individual moment. This will be a, a personal interview that you will have with, with Jesus Christ at this Bema. It's not a community affair. It's not a church gathering. It's a one-on-one interview with the Son of the living God. It won't be like the, the, uh, the final judgment of the 24 at American Idol if you watch that. So what are we giving an account of? What is it that we're going to have this interview over? Well, look back again at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, the last part of the verse, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we will essentially be assessed on our good works, what we've done here on this earth in our body. Now, I have to make something very clear here. In the English Standard Version, it says good or evil. In some of your tests, it may say good or bad. What you need to understand is these two terms, good and evil, which are juxtaposed each other, are not moral terms. They're not terms where morality is inherent. There are two very different Greek words in the original text to talk about that which is morally good and that which is morally evil, bad. Basically what he's saying here is we will be assessed on whether or not our works were valuable, in that sense good. They have value, they're worthy, or they were useless, unworthy. So again, this isn't about your sin, Okay, this isn't about where you're going to heaven, to, to heaven or not. This is a moment in time in the future where you will, you will stand at the bema and, or you'll probably be on your knees, you will stand at the bema and you and Jesus will have essentially an exit interview from earth to talk about what you've done in the body and especially those things which are valuable and those things which are not. Well, Steve, what does this accounting look like? What's this experience going to be like? Well, I want to jump back to 1 Corinthians 3 because I think we have a little bit clearer picture. It's not totally clear, but a little clearer picture of what we're looking at. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse verse 10, um, we see... I'm in 2 Corinthians. I better get to 1 Corinthians, hadn't I? 1 Corinthians 10... Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. There have been questions about who's the better preacher, who's the better pastor, and 
in Corinth and somebody, well, I like Apollos, I like this person, I like that person. And, and, and Paul says, look, according to the grace that God's given me, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building upon it. And then he says, let each one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but it's only through fire. So here's the deal. Jesus is the foundation of our lives, and that's been laid for us through Scripture. And every single day through what you and I do, we are building a building to God's glory. And each day, as we do what we would consider to be a good work, gold, silver, precious stone, I'll get that in a minute, um, we're building that building to the glory of God, and it'll stand. If we mess up, if we do things for ourselves, selfishly, that's wood, hay, and stubble. Here's what I think. I believe that if you live your life according to the will of God, founded on the word of God, dependent on the spirit of God, for the glory of God, whatever you do is gonna be gold, silver, or precious stones. Should I say that again? According to the will of God, founded on the word of God, dependent upon the spirit of God for the glory of God. Anything you do that matches that would be considered gold, silver, precious stone. Whatever you do in the power of the flesh, no matter how good it appears on the outside, whatever you do to, to, impo- to, to impress yourself, or to do it because you feel like you're being told to do it, not dependent on the Spirit, not motivated by the glory of God. That's wood, hay, and stubble. And so Jesus is going to assess the quality of our works here on earth. But more than that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, as he's again talking about not pronouncing judgment on one another, he says... When the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden and will disclose the purposes of of the heart. I believe when we stand before him, not only will he be testing the quality of our work, but he will be examining the motives of our work, as as I said before. So what will survive the fire, the gold, the good works done with right motives? Well, What are some of those, Steve? Well, there's the obvious, you know, serving in kids' ministry, joining, you know, going out with Soul Kitchen, with the right motive, of course. But here's some others. Making the small sacrifices that show your your wife how much you love her. Honoring and obeying your parents. 
doing your work at work for the Lord, even if your boss is cranky, angry, and not very good. Avoiding the colorful metaphors that come to your mind and would love to come off your lips when you get cut off on the 101 by the guy that just got in front of you. Inviting your next door neighbor with that ridiculously noisy dog that never stops barking over for dinner and tell him your story and ask him to tell you his story or her story. How are you dealing with the injustice that's going on in this culture right now? How do you like the fact that they're calling Christians bigots, people haters? How do you deal with that? Do you get mad and angry and, you know, again, want to use colorful metaphors or gestures that aren't appropriate? Or are you listening to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are you when men revile and say all things, you know, against you? Your reward, your reward is great in, he in heaven. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad when that happens. <laughs> Financial generosity, whether it's giving somebody $5 on the corner at Frank Lloyd Wright and the 101 who's sitting out there with a cardboard sign and God just tells you to do it. You don't know what they're going to do with it. It doesn't matter. God told you to do it. You do it. That's a good work. That's gold or, or silver or, or a precious stone. So what's the result of all of this accounting? Jesus and I are going to have this interview, and I don't know whether he's going to have a list or we're just going to talk about it. or you know, I, I'm not sure. I, I, we don't have enough details in, in the text to do that. But what he does say in verses 14 and 15 is that if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, according, now remember, it's the work, not the person. You're not going to become a crispy critter as a result of this. Okay? It's, it's, it's your work. He will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What you do today have consequences for the kingdom to come. Let me say that again. What you do today have consequences for the kingdom to come. The Bema of Christ is not a judgment seat. It is a place of rewards. It's a place where you will go as a believer and stand before Jesus and he will reward you for the gold and silver and precious stone everyday good works that you've done in the body. Rewards, really, Steve? Yeah, I mean, the concept of rewards is all throughout Scripture. All the way through the Old Testament and New Testament. There's dozens of passages. Well, what are some of these rewards? Well, for some of us, we believe that these rewards, according to, to, to Matthew and Timothy and Revelation, that some of these rewards may be the ability to sit in a leadership position in the Millennial Kingdom, side by side with Jesus. That'd be a pretty cool thing, wouldn't it? Depending on how, how I did, I might be rewarded that way. Most of you are thinking crowns, okay? Well, crowns are not what they put on Prince George's head to make him king. That's a different kind of crown. When we talk about crowns in the New Testament that are rewards for believers, 
it's those Stephanos. I like to say that because that's my name, where my name comes from. They're that garland wreath, that wreath that came from a fir tree that has no intrinsic worth. It isn't about the value. You're not going to be walking around after walking off the Bema seat with a bag of crowns, you know, crinkling against each other in a bag going, gee, I got five and, and Fred Warden only got three. Again, it's about honor, accomplishment, dignity. It's not about the thing. Now, there's several crowns in the New Testament. We know that there's a, a crown, a victor's crown for people who say no when things get tough, when it's necessary to do so. 1 Corinthians 9. James 1 talks about a crown of life for overcoming persecution and temptation. There's a crown of rejoicing for those who bring others to Jesus, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. And there's a crown of righteousness from, for those who are obvious about the fact that heaven, not earth, is their home. And then there's a crown of glory reserved for pastors, teachers, shepherds of God, God's people in, in, 1 Corinthians, or in 1 Peter chapter 5. So there are crowns, but again, don't think of a physical crown. Think of what the crown represents. Honor, prominence, dignity, accomplishment before your Lord for what you've done according to his will, based on his word, dependent on his spirit for his glory. Well, Steve, I got a big problem with rewards. It seems to me that the, the concept of striving of, for rewards, struggling towards maturity for the sake of being honored and rewarded at the Bema is self-serving. Well, all I can say is this. The Bible is absolutely explicit that there will be a day of accounting, that some will receive rewards while others will not. They will suffer loss. And the, the rewards to be distributed upon that day over and over again in the New Testament, those rewards are an incentive to live each and every day for God's glory in the New Testament. Well, what do you mean by suffer loss? Well, if we didn't run our race well, if we didn't build well, it says we will suffer loss. Suffer loss of what? Suffer loss of rewards. It isn't you're gonna lose your salvation. It isn't that you're gonna be burned up. It's that in the testing process, and I don't know exactly what that looks like, nevertheless, we will be saved, okay, we'll be delivered, but those unworthy works, those of no value will be burned up because they were wood, hay, or stubble, and they'll be burned up in the purification process of Jesus. Samuel Hoyt, who's written a great book on the, the Bema Seat called The Judgment Seat of Christ, explains it this way, and I love the way he puts it. See if you can get the picture. The judgment seat of Christ might be compared to a commencement ceremony. At graduation, there is some measure of disappointment and remorse that one didn't do better and work harder. However, at such an event, the overwhelming emotion is joy, not remorse. Graduates don't leave the auditorium weeping because they didn't earn better grades. Rather, they are thankful that they have been graduated. They are grateful for what they did achieve. They're grateful for the diploma. To overdo the sorrow aspect of the judgment seat of Christ is to make heaven hell. To underdo the sorrow aspect is to make faithfulness inconsequential. 
The bima of Jesus is a place of reward. If we are faithful to the Lord in this life, we look forward to that day. If we mess up, we won't be condemned to hell. We'll still stand before him, and there still will be gold, silver, and precious stone to talk about. So the bima of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, and I wish we could forget that word, the bima of Christ is not something that we should be afraid of. Bottom line, you were created for good works. You were uniquely designed for good works. And you will be evaluated and rewarded for your good works done in the Spirit. And that should motivate you to do works according to his will, founded on his word, dependent on his spirit for his glory. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, don't you know that everybody who runs in a race runs to win? But only one receives the prize? So you run to win. Run for the reward. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says to Timothy, do your best. That's an athletic term. Be diligent to present yourself to God, approved, well-pleasing, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing, rightly applying the word of God in your daily life. And then in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in the verse after verses 9 and 10 that we read earlier, Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Let others know that they too can receive reward by doing things in the right spirit. Just before I graduated from Dallas Seminary back in the previous century, Chuck Swindoll came to, our, came to a chapel and he preached a message that I'll never forget on 2 Timothy. And at the end of his message, he says, you know what? <clears throat> I want to leave you guys with three questions that you ask yourself at the end of every day. And I think those three questions apply perfectly here as we think about how we're going to live our life this afternoon and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and the rest of our lives. When you th want to think about being rewarded, standing before the beam and being rewarded, here are those three questions. Number one, was your work well done? Was your work well done? Number two, was the word well used? Did you use the word well today? And three, was the Lord well pleased with what you did and how you did it? Was the work well done? Was the word well used? Was the Lord well pleased? If you can answer yes, at the end of the days that you have before you, when you stand at the bema in front of Jesus, there will be massive smiles on both faces. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, you created us in your purpose to do good here on earth. Not that we might be saved, but that we might have an impact on other people's lives and on this culture and in this society and on our loved ones. 
Father, I pray that we at all would adapt these questions at the end of our day, in the days and weeks ahead. And God, I don't look forward with fear. I look forward with excitement to that graduation day when I stand before you. And I pray the Lord the same for my brothers and sisters. I pray that they too might be able to stand before you with a smile on their face, knowing that they've done everything that they could do according to your will, founded on your word, dependent on your spirit for your glory. That you might receive that glory in Jesus' name. Amen.